So if you've been following my channel for a little bit, you know that one of our major trends that we are uh, seeing for 2021 is prop tech and innovation and creativity in commercial real estate. So today I figured it would be appropriate to have David Stoller on with me. David has been working in prop tech for years. He was with Siemens for quite a bit. He's with Brainbox AI now, which is doing some pretty fascinating things in the prop tech sector. So David, what's going on, man? Not much, uh, you know, working from home like a lot of people right now, uh, <clears throat> but I'm really thrilled to be here. Thanks for the invite, and I'm looking forward to nerding out with you about prop tech and, and development and all that. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's funny, David and I had a conversation about this last week, and we kind of set a uh, like an hour timeline for ourselves to have this conversation, and we got to an hour, and we were like, man, we feel like we just blinked. We could sit here and talk about all of these nerdy things about commercial real estate for hours. So uh, that's why we decided to do this, which I'm, I'm really excited about, man. And uh, so, so talk to us a little bit. I mean, one thing that I didn't mention, obviously, you are a, the co-chairman for the Innovation Council at the Urban Land Institute, which is how you and I really got to know each yeah. other well. Uh, will you give everybody a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, certainly. Um, so uh, like a lot of people, uh, I didn't, you know, I wasn't kind of, I didn't come into this, uh, uh, you know, right out of school. I kind of, it was a, quite a bit of a journey. Um, but for most of my career, uh, I've kind of, pinged in between energy and technology and kind of the confluence of all those things. Um, I started off as a consultant for a large corporation working off and working internally after college, um, did that for several years, moved into the energy sector and then um, built out a couple companies um, and a couple of divisions within larger organizations. And most recently I was the uh, director of strategy and development at Siemens for their IOT group. And uh, I'm currently with a company called Brainbox AI. We're an artificial intelligence for commercial real estate company. That's awesome. So we, we haven't dived too far into your IoT position with Siemens. Can you talk a little bit about what you were doing with the Internet of Things? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, that, that role was kind of born out of a couple key acquisitions that Siemens had made. So for those of you who aren't too you know, familiar with Siemens as an organization. First of all, it's a massive multinational conglomerate with a lot of different divisions. Um, but one of them is their building technologies group, um, now called Smart Infrastructure. And within the Smart Infrastructure group, they have building automation, control, fire, security, life safety, air ventilation for specialty laboratories. And in order to kind of round out and um, kind of move their offering into the new generation of technologies in the built space, they made a couple acquisitions. One was a company called Enlighted, um, and one was a company called Comfy, and then another one called J2 Industries. Um, most of my time was focused around the Enlighted offering. Um, I worked closely with some of the people over at the, um, <clears throat> uh, with some of the experiential app teams. So the IoT offering, uh, as it pertains to Siemens, is a little bit different, but fundamentally, IoT stands for the Internet of Things. And it's simply the process of creating sensors and data backhaul for all forms of the built environment so that you can create new inferences, new actionable insights, or even new applications for consumers. Um, and so what we were really working towards at the time was how do commercial real estate owners and operators get a better insight into their asset. And that was really what Enlighted was looking for, right? Enlighted is high density, high granularity data occupancy um, that you can then run through a series of analytics to create a whole set of inferences, whether it's uh, utilization, right? Because densification was the big key word for a long time. Now with COVID, it's a little bit different. Um, but 
there's other inferences you can derive and how people work with each other, how people use the space so that you can, as a building owner, can better redeploy or re, uh, you know, reconceptualize spaces for clients to deliver more value to your customers at the end of the day. Um, so that was really what we were working on uh, at, at within that confront. And then simultaneously, I was working closely with developers to help kind of conceptualize um, what a smart building could look like and then ensure that delivery through the construction process. And so, you know, you, Tyler, probably are aware as anybody that the construction process as it stands today isn't ideal. I don't think anybody's exactly happy with how it works, um, but just due to the historical and legacy organizations that we have and the way that we organize around each other for these developments, you know, sometimes we don't deliver the best solutions to the end user. And it's just due to conflicting in, in, investment or not investments, conflicting interests at different levels of that development. Um, and so my job is to kind of help smooth that transition from concept all the way through to delivery. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I mean, if you look at construction, a lot of it largely hasn't changed for, for decades. I mean, which is kind of wild to think about, right? You think about you know, in the last 30 years, computers have taken over the world. And for the most part, you know, yeah, we've talked about 3D printing homes and we've talked about computers building homes and stuff like that, but it's still not really mainstream and it's not happening all that much. I mean, why do you think that is? Why do you think that construction has been so slow to adapt? Uh, well, you know, I think there's a couple different reasons. Um, one is the, the way that construction unfurls, right? So if you look at the different stages from development, there's a whole world centered around raising capital in order to do this. You have architects who are concerned about the design and the deliverable. You have general contractors who um, are concerned about, you know, obviously safety and things like that. But fundamentally, they're concerned about getting on a job and off a job in as timely a manner as possible, just due to the way that their cash flow operates. And then more specifically, doing that job under budget. And so you have that creates conflict in the way that a project is delivered. Um, and specifically because historically we've, we've, and then within our organizations, we've always had the requirement for specialties, right? And I think you, we see this across all industries though. Um, you know, there used to be, if you work in a manufacturing plant, there used to be a guy maybe who specialized in one particular motor management, right? If you, uh, go to a bookstore. There used to be a person who was knew a lot about one specific genre. There was bookstores, <laughs> but uh, yeah. there there was highly specialized professionals that focused around one very big thing because particularly in the built environment, it's such a big comprehensive solution. So you had to have mechanical, electrical, plumbing, structural, landscape. And for a developer and for a, a user, those are fundamentally one thing. And for the delivery process, it's a bunch of different things. And so you create a series of silos that uh, just, you know, don't talk to each other the way they should um, and have, and you know, they say they talk to each other, but, you know, we know that really they don't talk to each other to the degree that they should. And so you end up with disjointed systems or you end up with disjointed deliverables that while may match the specification requirements don't match the intent of the original design. Uh, and that's a problem. And that goes back to how a lot of manufacturers go to market with their channel partners and uh, manufacturer specification requirements that, and the way that people spec lock products and things like that in order to um, 
control a total package. So there's a lot of just different things. And it's not just the construction industry. When you start to look into the acquisition and the distribution models, there's a lot of issues in the way that those little tendrils spin off to. And so that's why it's important to, and that was part of the reason we felt what we were doing so valuable. I think our clients agreed is that we were able to kind of navigate that whole piece of the economy, not just from the developer's requirements, but all the way through to when the consumer acquired it, and then how we acquired materials and who making sure that they were the right things for what we were trying to do. Yeah, I'm sure there's some stuff going on behind the scenes, but it would be interesting to see, you know, how how blockchain could impact construction because it seems to me, I mean, it really you're you're absolutely right. It's it's all these individual silos. I mean, you've got your contract, you've got the developer, then the architect, then the engineer, then, you know, your your landscape architect. And, um, you know, then you have your contractor and then the contractor has all these subcontractors underneath them. And so how can you make that entire process talk to each other at the same time? Because I would imagine if you could figure that out, it would make the entire process not only far more efficient, but far faster. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. I think that the obstacle there is that, the is kind of more inertia, right? You know, people do business the way that they've kind of always done business, right? Like, and that, because they're afraid of trying new things, like innovation can often be a scary word, right? And so that's part of the thing that we work on at the Innovation Action Council is to try to identify ways to make innovation more palatable for people who, or packaged in a way that makes it easy um, for our members, because, you know, you if you have something that works and you know it works and it's always worked, why would you change it, right? Uh, the reality is it may work for you in the small piece of what you're delivering on, but in the the in the holistic deliverable, it doesn't actually deliver as much value that you need, right? So it, it's hard to get people to see or make the changes internally. Um, so I, I well, I think that blockchain, and I know that there's a lot of other kind of cryptos that are focusing on, like I was, a buddy of mine's been talking a lot about um, Chainlink, which is really tied, is a crypto that's specifically tied to different contracts. Um, <clears throat> I think that there's a lot of opportunity, but the obstacle there is getting all the people on board. And then from a, and then kind of a monetization strategy around that, right? So if you're a developer, I think the stipulations that it leads with you, right? It, I'm doing this project and in order to ensure, you know, the warranty of my products and the fidelity of my vision, I want to have a framework to, to deliver this project and anyone who wants to participate has to be on this platform. I think that's where the, that's how you can deliver that, right? It, 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 I don't think general contractors are going to opt into it. I, I definitely don't think, you know, distribution partners are going inter to, are interested in doing that or manufacturers. I think it needs to be driven from the developer side of things, if that's going to, if that change is going to be fundamentally, they, everyone answers back to them. Yeah, it's so true. Cause I mean, the, the, the developers, the orchestrator, right. They're the ones that are controlling the whole show. So if, if it really comes from the, the top down uh, yeah. to make that decision, you've got to, you've got to conscientiously make the choice that, Hey, technology, the internet of things, having, you know, these hyper modernized buildings is important to me. You know, let's figure out how to make that happen. Absolutely. And, you know, that's something that I always, you know, when I was with Siemens, when we first got started, we we initially were trying to leverage our existing channel. Um, and we were going to engineers and, and general contractors. And, you know, you'd hear some some are really progressive, right? Some are really in it and they understand they're bought in and they're doing it. There's other ones that just fundamentally don't see value in, in doing that stuff because their customers don't directly ask them for it. And that's a failure not of them it's a failure of maybe i maybe it's a failure of the of the developer for not looking to the future right you know i mean there's a lot that there's a lot of developers out there that look at these assets as just numbers on a spreadsheet and 
the reality is buildings are more than that, right? They're, they're places where we live, they're places we learn, they're places that we work. I mean, we spend the majority of our lives in the built environment. Um, and so in order to get, you know, if, I think the, the, the thought process needs to shift at the developer level in some cases for this stuff to happen in order to, to drive it down through the channel. Right. So whenever one of the if, whenever a developer goes, oh, yeah, they're looking at the cap rate, they're looking at all the, their finance and they're figuring, you know, what, if we could do this and rent it, this, this is a good deal. I'm pulling the trigger. And then they kind of walk away and they just monitor it on the Excel sheet. And I think that, you know, that's fine. Right. Because sometimes these are, you know, people, but I don't think I just don't like the idea of treating buildings like bonds. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, if you are joining us live, feel free to leave us questions in the live chat, and Dave and I will get uh, we'll get to those as we can. So, David, that's that's a pretty good segue right there. So, wh- how do you think that prop tech is going to have, or I guess, where do you think prop tech will have a bigger impact on our current infrastructure or on new construction? Oh man, you know, so it depends on the type of prop tech. Um, you know, when people talk about prop tech, that includes a lot of you know uh, big kind of institutional players too that you know we all know but we just don't think of you know uh, all of the asset enterprise asset management uh players i think that um you know i think there's new versions of that when i when i think about technology i think of it in a couple different ways you maybe that'll help i think of the first generation the first in kind of digital revolution was simply the the replication of hard copy in digital format, right? So these are fundamentally papers that are being put to a computer that we can access and easily transfer or mark off. And that's what a lot of the traditional software solutions or a lot of the traditional technology solutions are, is simply taking a file cabinet and putting it on a computer or taking a paper moving machine and putting it on a right? And so I think the next iteration is taking that really comprehensive paper component of your business and then looking towards the digitization of your physical assets. Um, and that's the next generation. That's where the IOT component comes in. And then we're leveraging those that data and we're buying, applying analytics, which is you know even deeper, we're starting to apply AI. And we can apply, and I think there's gonna be a lot of different players across all of those groups that are touching on stuff. So that being said, I think in new construction, that middle component, that IOT that really, um, dense, integrated, and accessible data, it's going to be on new construction. Uh, I think it's really cost, pro- it can be cost prohibitive sometimes. I mean, in, in existing assets, um, there are solutions that you can deploy that are cost, that make a lot of sense and that can start doing it. But fundamentally, I think what we're all trying to achieve is how do we get as much data out of these assets in order to optimize them as much as possible and save as much money and deliver as much value to our clients, right? Um, so there are solutions like that asset management software or resource enterprise resource planning software that can deliver value on existing properties, right? Um, AI can deliver value on existing properties provided you have that data. Um, but I think that the ones that are going to generate the most value are the ones that have the best data infrastructure and have the best capability of capturing that information that they can then use. And does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it, look, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're if you're building a building from the ground up, you're obviously going to have more touch points, and and it's far easier to just go ahead and install the technology than it is to go back and retrofit a, a solid concrete building and have to you know run wiring or plumbing or you know something else through all of that. I mean, I, you know, it's 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 a pain. 
Um, yeah, and I think so, you know, a lot of times you look at asset class life cycle, right? Like sometimes people are going like, well, do I want to invest in this? Do I want to, you know, how much more could I conceivably get out of this asset class? Because, you know, maybe I put in sensors or whatever cool thing. It, it's fundamentally still like a 45-year-old building with indoor decor from the 70s, right? right. Like, when you think about what's going to deliver, uh, it, you know, technology is a – you know, from a business perspective, it, 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 like I said, it has to start kind of at the top. You need to have somebody who's bought into the vision and the concept from the beginning and at the top to drive it through um, because, it, 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 you know, it doesn't – there's a lot of people who aren't going to just naturally do it. They're going to they're gonna wait. And that's just – I mean, even today, right, like when you talk about like digital transformation, we've undergone a massive one in our society in the last year, COVID – was the you know one of the largest drivers where i mean everyone's working from home like myself included right um we're using teleconferencing to a degree we've never done before um you know there are certain aspects of the way that businesses have always operated that would not change despite these products all being here all being affordable all being viable it was it took some external cause that forced them and that's because a lot of the leadership was not interested in necessarily pushing it on their own. That being said, we were working with some clients who during COVID were already prepared, right? We, we, they had a smart building. They had, they were integrated. They were, they had under, they'd started undergoing their digital transformation as an organization. And when COVID happened, that process to switch over was quick, right? Like Siemens, we had done it. And when COVID hit while I was there, it, you know, we moved 375,000 employees to remote like overnight. It was wow. it, it right like that's that's a huge feat, but all of the work, all of the like, you know, pain and suffering of that digital transformation had happened years earlier. Right? So we were able to do that, and I think that gets fundamentally gets to what the value of this stuff is, is not necessarily oh do we have tech just to be signing or do we have it? It's being bought into the concept, enabling yourself to be able to do it, but then also understanding it gives you flexibility, it gives you resiliency as an organization, and that's important. And I think that that gets at a whole nother aspect of, of the, the world that we're talking about when it comes to you know investors bringing money into the real estate system. I think Blackstone just announced that they're prioritizing ESG rated bonds and investments over everything, right? They're making those of the defaults going forward for all their 401k packages, their Roth packages. And so if you're an organization who relies on lenders to finance your projects, you're going to need to have this kind of stuff. You're going to need to think about this ahead of time because otherwise you're not going to be able to raise funds in the way that you were used, you used to be able to. Because I mean, Blackstone is whatever, 7% of global GDP or something like that. It's they're huge, right? They're pretty big. They're pretty big. That's man. That's that's wild when you put that in perspective with three hundred and seventy-five thousand employees. I mean, the, the majority of companies that we work with are you know sub fifty, and so it's it's relative. I mean, compared to three hundred and seventy-five thousand people, that's very easy to pivot when you have you know fifty or employees or fewer. Can't even imagine what would have happened to a company at the start of this pandemic had they not been preparing for that. Right. And think about how many people, I mean, I think we're seeing the results of it. There's a lot of organizations that aren't here now or are suffering to a degree or scaled down to a degree that uh, they're not as effective as they were. Now, it's unfortunate. Right. Um, and that's not to say that, like, if they had appropriately invested in property tech for their board, they would they would be here today. But I, th I don't think that's necessarily the, the truth. But I think it, uh, it 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 underlines a larger 
mindset around being innovative in the way you do your business, right? And just because things have worked, I don't think that's going to be a good excuse going forward, um, you know, kind of illustrated by the investment world taking notice and making these kind of activist, I guess they would call them activists, I would say that they're just better investment practices these days. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that as an organization, if you're thinking about innovation, if you're thinking about resiliency, if you're thinking about sustainability, if you're thinking about the future multi-use capabilities you're building and how you can enable that, that's reflective of a, a company that is thinking about long-term potential opportunities and is not being short-sighted in the way that they do business. And I think that that's important. And I think that's important to investors. And I think that, and when, when I, you know, when Blackstone mentioned that, they said the reason they're making this important is because if you're not considering carbon or environmental impacts as a potential detriment or to the business and how you contribute or how you're mitigating, it's illustrative of poor planning as an organization. And therefore, we are less inclined to invest in you. And that's the logic behind it, right? And it, it's like, it's very clear. It makes sense. Um, I think we just need to figure out a framework or a way, you know, or a way to kind of communicate that to some of the more staunch, slow to grow commercial real estate players, right? When you break it down like that, I mean, it's it's a no brainer, you know, for Blackstone to say, no, if you're overlooking the environment, we're not going to invest in you because clearly you're you're missing the boat. I mean, that's that's brilliant. I, I actually never thought about environmental. Um, I mean, basically using the a company's environmental inclination, whether it's positive or negative, to, as a determining factor of whether they're a viable company. I mean, and that I mean to, to be to be perfectly clear, they're still investing in the old stuff, right? Like it's sure. still they still you know invest in bombs and and, and oil and and tobacco and like, you know all the other stuff. Hey, but, I'm sure there's environmentally <laughs> conscious bombs out there. Sprinkle <laughs> seed. That's right. Uh, but I, I think they. I think it, it shows that they have a firm understanding that like changes are inevitable, right? Either they're quick like COVID or they're slow like raising sea tides or they're coming into play and they're disrupting people's businesses, right? You know, when you talk, I, I lived in Louisiana for a long time and the environmental impacts down there are abundantly clear, right? We had, you know, we had the BP oil spill, we've got, you know, deep, We've got, you know, pollution in the, in the in the Gulf. We've got a dead zone. We've got, you know, rising temperatures from global warming, which is increasing more hurricanes. Like there's just this inevitable deluge of things that happen because of that. And so the businesses that operate there have to adjust. And if they don't adjust, they're not going to exist because there's going to be complete, you know, the flora and fauna change. And so whenever, when, when someone like that says, when an organization like them says, we are changing, our, we're, we're looking to our, our, we're, our investment criteria is going to start to consider how you not necessarily even contribute, but how you plan around it. Right. So and if you understand that the future of global warming or these negative environmental or social or social unrest like impact you, what are you doing to mitigate them so that it doesn't impact you in a negative way? And then how are you also planning be prepared for that if and when some of them inevitably do occur. And that's, if you're not thinking in that way, you're not actually thinking about how to make your business successful in the long term. And that's what investing is, right? Like they want to invest in long-term successful businesses and to generate returns. Yeah, I love that mentality because, 
you know, change starts locally, right? And so if, if, if a company that's that large is saying, look, one of the first things that we're starting to look at is environmental and how you're taking that into consideration, you know, that, I mean, that's, that's how things start to change, which is, which is pretty yeah. exciting to see. Let's, let's break, let's break the innovation and technology down to a more granular level. What are, what are a few examples of, you know, implemented technology within building systems that you're seeing today that we didn't have five years ago? Well, uh, I think obviously IoT is really a really um, robust new set of solutions. I think that, you know, there's air, indoor air quality is something that a lot of people haven't um, given a lot of a lot of time to, which I think they're starting to, obviously, besides COVID, but there's immense amount of data that indicate that indoor, like highly recycled indoor air is problematic in your ability to function. Like, you know, yeah. high, like how much carbon in the air is, can make you lethargic, make you lazy. I mean, you know, there was a lot, I, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but there was a study I had seen where they basically were saying like, you know, the Wednesday lulls that you feel, you're like, oh, middle of the week, uh, you know, you're getting tired by then. A lot of that has to do with just oversaturation of carbon in your bloodstream from spending so much time in the office, right? Or in that recycled, in the recycled environment. So lack, not having that is probably, and that's why, you know, you come back, Monday and you're like, oh, it hits you. You kind of start to acclimate and by the end, you know, you get the lulls again and then you're acclimating by Thursday or Friday having those carbon changes and then you go out and you lose it again. And so That's fascinating. At- I didn't I didn't realize that that was actually, I mean, it makes sense if you start like studying people and, and how the work environment affects them. I mean, tenants have started asking about air quality. And I think it's for a different reason. I mean, they're obviously asking for, you know, how quickly does the, the air scrubber turn over air in here and, and purify yeah. it so that we don't have to worry about a larger number of people being in the same space um, mm-hmm. and breathing in COVID from each other. But that's really interesting. I didn't realize, I mean, obviously it's going to, imp- you know, impact productivity with your employees. Right. So, that, and that, that's, that's, a, that's part of it as well. So I think that those things have kind of been combined together for a lot of clients and they're, and they're looking at them in that way. Um, I think indoor air quality... Um, I would say that, you know, artificial intelligence is, I mean, we've, we've, we've hit the nail on some systems in the built environment in order to deliver immense amounts of value. Um, and that, you know, as somebody who at Brainbox AI, our AI is basically on top of a existing BMS Right, and the we have a which short long, building management system, correct? Yeah, building management okay. system, which is oftentimes the really expensive technology that goes into your building after you've built the actual physical structure. It's what controls your air. It's what controls your alarms. It controls your lighting. It controls all the components of your building from a centralized location. And this BMS uh, is functionally the way buildings operate is it's it's like cruise control on a car it's static and it's reactive and it only changes when something has kind of gone out of the parameters that are established and with ai we can learn not only how the building operates but also start to make predictions of what will happen with a very high level of accuracy in our case we're doing 99 percent accuracy up to four hours out we can t- say we can with such wow. confidence say this is how your building is going to react to external temperature changes, changes in the way that people move throughout your building, and so with that level of confidence, we can then adjust operations in order to deliver a more comfort, which is important, right? But b significantly reduce your energy consumption, 
right? It costs, a, it takes a lot of energy to constantly zigzag between cooling and heating a space. And that's kind of what air conditioning control systems do today. And it's, you know, it represents 40% of all energy consumption in the United States is commercial HVAC. And so if it's pinging back and forth, trying to keep itself in whatever set point we've established for it, that, that right there, that pinging is missed, you know, it's discomfort, right? Cause it's too hot, it's too cold, it's too hot, it's too cold. Or, and it's also overrunning mechanical equipment. So as a building owner, that's, a, that's an investment you've made. Every time you start and stop that equipment, it costs money and reduces the lifespan of that. You gotta go get maintenance. And then it's always, and you have systems fighting against each other, right? One's heating, one's cooling. And so you're losing tons of energy. So our AI, uh, because of that predictive component, as well as uh, a series of short, long-term deep neural network learning mechanisms, we can actually optimize and reduce energy by anywhere from 15 to 30% in a built environment, just depending on what kind of level of infrastructure utilization you have. And I think that's fantastic, right? Because it's software, you just turn it on. It doesn't require really costly material. I don't have to come in and install something. I don't need to rip out a boiler room. There's all these really costly, heavy investments that you as a developer and property owner have made that we can optimize without necessarily changing hardware, right? So that's one of the things, like how can we better, imp we can improve operations of expensive hardware with cost-effective solutions in software. That's fascinating. So let's let's walk through that. I mean, uh, up to 99% accuracy, four hours out. That's that's incredible. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, as an example, it, it's, it's three in the morning. It knows mm -hmm. that people are going to start coming in starting at seven. It's in the winter, so it starts slowly heating up the building until seven, so that it's the right temperature when people get back there. Because it it was shut down overnight, or how is that kind of how that would work? So the way the way the systems work today, and you'll if you're a building, every building has like a build. Every kind of large building will have a facility manager, a building engineer, something like that, right? Uh, probably quite a few of them are listening right <laughs> right now. Yeah. But these guys look at occupancy when your clients are coming in, when your tenants are showing up, and they make plans based off of how long it takes to cool or heat a space prior to it needing to be used, right? And so they have, they, and what they do is they program, it's called programming, it's a sequence of operations into the BMS on like turn on the fan, run the cool air, do this, that, and the other. And what ends up happening is that becomes the kind of sequence of operations and it stays that way, you know, unless of course someone says we're going to start showing up later or we're going to show up. The difference is, there are uh, external factors that can drive your efficacy of your buildings or the cost centers of your building. So a lot of utilities have peak demand charges and it all happens around the same time. Everyone shows up every day. It's because most people get to work around the same time. Right. And so it, it, your peak demand charges are basically the time everyone gets there or the time every building turns on. Right. So if you think about pre-COVID times, everybody went to the office and we're in Nashville at, Everyone fights through traffic. They all get into the buildings and then thousands and thousands of people go into their offices. That has an impact on temperature. So buildings have to kick into high gear to cool off ahead of time. Um, and every building doing that is a strain on the strain on the utility infrastructure. And so they have a huge spike in demand. And what they have to do to mitigate that is they charge people extra money because then they have to go buy power from somewhere else or they have a quick fire, a coal burning plant, right? that they use quick fire. And so AI learning this and understanding the changes that, or the charges that might be coming, it can say, you know what, maybe what I'll do is at 3 a.m. instead of waiting until 
6 a.m. to start cooling like I've been programmed to do, I'll start cooling, I'll cool it even further down now when power's cheap and then coast up through and not charge and not be charged for that peak demand. And that's the fiscal component, wow. right? So AI can learn that and it'll learn when people show up. It'll figure it out, right? Because systems are getting kicked on. It'll, it'll if you have occupancy data integrated, you know, some do, some don't. It can fill in the gaps if they see thermal trends shifting ex that are extraneous to what the outside environment is doing. So there's a lot of intelligence baked into it. And it's just a lot of simple infers, right? Like that's, you know, AI is this real big scary thing for a lot of people. Um, but really it's just a lot of, it's a lot of system. It's the system has been learned, has been taught to infer information. If this, then this, right? It's, it's Boolean logic basically. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, you know, these employers that are starting their work days at different hours, you know, either they come in at, you know, 10 a.m. after rush hour and they leave at, you know, 6 or 7 p.m. after rush hour to just avoid the inefficiencies yeah. that come with that. I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah. That's it. That's and that's a great example of like, you know, and that's, that's, that's like, not everything requires a new fancy tech thing. Like, you know, we don't always need widgets and softwares and sensors to solve every problem. Right. Like. A lot of things can be just fixed with like better administrative planning, you know, like simple rethinking. Right? Yeah, exactly. And that's when like when we talk about innovation being from a top down, like it, it's important that it's not just some team that's sitting there going like, all right, what new widget are we going to buy? But like, what are some processes that we can implement in the way that we operate that would benefit our not only our employees, but like the way that we operate? Like, let's stay. Let's stagger the teams that come in. Right. Because there's value. I know everyone's saying like, oh, the office workers is dead. It's like, it's just not true. You know, not even close. It's just, people, there's a lot of people who like office, particularly millennials, which is interesting. A lot of people would be surprised. Like millennials are driving the return to work narrative because so many of them, um, you know, that's their social network, you know, like <laughs> that's where they go and socialize, the way they meet people. You know, the millennial generation for a lot of parts wants to go back to the office because you know, most of them are highly urban, high density urban dwellings. So they have small apartments in, in cities somewhere and they have maybe a roommate and like they want to go back to the office. They want to get out. They want to go have space. They want to do it. They want to socialize and meet other people. A lot of them aren't married. Most of them don't own homes. And so <clears throat> it, it's it, the office isn't going anywhere. But figuring out how the office can be more impactful is probably really a good idea. Like so. You can say, let's stagger our teams so that there's reduced risk of exposure, but let's make the teams cross-functional so that they can address any concern across their group. So I can go to someone in marketing. There'll be one person from marketing there. I'll go to there and talk to the marketing person. And then, but there's also, and then we can have that in, that face-to-face -face interaction that drives kind of like spontaneous innovation, right? Because that, that face to, that's where it happens. Like the best ideas are always like you know people just sitting around bs like this right and you know yeah. normally there's a beer in their hand right but like yeah. that's where that's, that's where usually like, how we're having our discussions I, I was thinking about that earlier yeah. i was like man we're missing a couple of beers <laughs> yeah, exactly but like that goes back to like what's his name oh god i forget his name he was a, he was a greek philosopher and he was trying he was tasked with figuring out if a jeweler had stolen the gold that he was tasked to make a crown with and he was he was told that he had to figure it out, like figure out how to know if they had stolen, right, or mixed in some less precious metal. And you know, he was like, "Oh God, I can't think. I'm thinking, 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 and thinking about it." And finally, he just went to the bath and was just like hanging out. And the baths in those days were like a social environment. They sat down, they relaxed, they talked, they BS. And when that moment happened, 
he was outside the confines of directly working on that specific project and he was out socializing, he noticed the water overflowed in the bath when a person got in. And that's when he had that what's called the Eureka moment. That's where that term comes from. Eureka means I've got it, I've got it, right? And he ran through the streets naked, screaming, I've got it, I've got it. <laughs> and he learned, he learned about density, but he was doing it just BSing with people, right? Hanging out. And so it, it's not, you know, the cubicle's not the answer necessarily. Working isolated at a home in a private office isn't necessarily the answer. I think the answer is just kind of whatever works best for anybody and enabling that. Yeah, I mean, look, at the end of the day, it's probably going to be a mixture of both, right? Yeah. I mean, my team is now far more remote friendly than we were uh, before COVID. Now, I have a team that's 100% millennials. So when you were saying, like, millennials want to be back in the office, I was, I was kind of laughing because, you know, June hit and I'd had the team working from home. And they were all just like every day. I was like, can we come back to the office? We kind of want to come back. We don't really care. You know, we'll take the risk, whatever. I was like, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you guys are welcome to come. So, I mean, we've been working back in the office since, you know, June. Um, and it's intuitive, right? It's, yeah. You, think you, would, you would think it'd be like the old, like the old stock. You guys are like, oh, we got to get back in there. But it's young people want to go back to the office. It's crazy. It's the op- yeah. I mean, nobody yeah, wants to just office. sit at home on their computer all day. It's, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of boring. So it's, it's fun, but yeah, it's true. I mean, there's so much synergy that you get from just being able to walk down the hallway and say, Hey, to the marketing guy and ask him a quick question. And there's a, there's a ton of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, and and so like, that was the idea behind, and I don't want to throw like these guys under the bus, but like, you know, so I won't say the names, but (laughs) that was the idea behind the open office, right? With the open open office concept was born. The idea was like, Let's get people out of their cubicles. Let's start talking to each other. Let's start, you know, you know, being innovative. And whenever they did that, they they started looking at the data, and they found that actually, without that kind of private space, people's desire to go and interact dissipated. Right? They wanted to try and create some little zone for themselves. So that's why you go to open office. Everyone's got headphones, and they don't talk as much. Um, <clears throat> But so they found that that innovation, those like spontaneous interactions dropped, productivity dropped. Right. But what they did discover was that they saved a butt ton of money on furniture and build outs. And so the open office kind of stayed. And so I think that's where a lot of people's concern about the death of the office space comes from is like we've historically seen that even drops in productivity provided that the cost savings for that delta is acceptable financially like they'll do it right they'll they'll put everybody remote and we're seeing organizations do that right now they're saying everyone's going remote but then we also see a lot of organizations saying, what? we're doing hybrid you want to come in come in you want to go out go out and what's likely to happen is slowly people are going to start coming to the office the millennials that need or want to be there and have less fear of covid and then as more people come vaccinated people are going to be starved for social interaction and more and more people are going to come back to the office and i think what's going to end up happening is ownership's going to have to be a little bit more is going to be have to become a little bit more flexible because the, the right now the, the 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 tenants have kind of all the cards on how much space they want and so they're going to have to find ways to use up what may in, inevitably become empty space or better enable their existing space for other customers right so i think there's a there's a right now is the time it's a rethink for a lot of business owners and people or property owners they need to think about how they can enable this really hybridized version of the workplace and prioritize 
productivity and innovation in the times that people are there. So I think that that's why it's so important that property developers look to enable their spaces so much more because that's going to be the competitive edge that they have against somebody who's just got four walls and a roof. You know, I've got yep. four walls and a roof. I'm sitting in it right now, but I'd much rather be in an office that was better attuned to, you know, me and you figuring out and, and coming up with new ideas and creating something new and exciting. Yeah. I mean, how do you differentiate yourself as a property owner, right? I mean, there's how many hundreds of, you know, 1980s office buildings that haven't been renovated out there. But, you know, if you can legitimately say as a property owner, you know, hey, um, we've got, you know, an upgraded HVAC system that turns the air over three times faster than your typical HVAC. And that actually increases your your employee productivity by two and a half percent or whatever. I mean, that's actually a tangible number that these these employers can start running the numbers on to see, okay, well, there's actually a bottom line difference that this building makes to us instead of just being a place to house our employees. Absolutely. And like, and that's something I think more property owners should start to like, try to have that conversation with their customers. Right? Like, how this is this is a way that it's, it, it becomes important. It's like, how can we embed further enable your goals as an organization? How can you know, you're renting from us, but this is a space where you create and you develop and you design and you do all of this, right? All this, this spark and innovation, all this. And you also fill up spreadsheets, of course, right? But like, how can we, what can we do together? What data can we gather in order to make this more productive for you, more beneficial, right? And it, as a building owner, you need to be able to say yes to a lot more stuff. And you're having tenants ask for more stuff, right? You're having tenants that want to have access to the BMS because they, just like us, are trying to get money from, you know, Blackstone and they want to be able to, they want to show their ESG report and they need to be able to show that they're reducing energy consumption. And so while it may be your building and your BMS, they're using the engine there. It's on their sustainability report. And so they need to be able to have that access. And if you haven't enabled that, they might not be that happy or that interested in staying there, right? Because fundamentally having a good ESG rating is going to become much more important than just where you stay. And if your building doesn't enable that, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble. I had a, I had a client that I worked with who had a large institutional renter, one of the big, you know, professional services firms. They had 75% of their building. It was a high rise in downtown Toronto. That is some expensive property and they just vacated the whole thing and because they couldn't get what they needed from a data standpoint in order to you know better understand their esg requirements but also how their employees worked right they're a data-driven company they want to know how their workers use their spaces and how to more fi- they want to really fine-tune understanding of how um how co-workers work together they wanted to be able to identify what they called oh god this was a brilliant idea they wanted to identify what they called unofficial, oh no, what was it? It was unofficial um, solutions, like specialists or something like that. So basically, like if you ever work in an office and you know you're supposed to go talk to marketing, but you know that if you go to so and so over in accounting, like she knows everything and she knows how to get this stuff done and fix it for you, you know, like I, every office, every building has that person or or those people. And so they were trying to figure out how to identify these people who were becoming resources to their teams, even though they weren't designed to be them, not only but like to help lighten their load, but also to replicate what they're doing that makes them so successful for their team members to work with. Right. And so but the building 
didn't have any of the abilities to do that. Didn't have five grain occupancy, didn't have an integration with the BMS, didn't have any energy management, metering, blah, 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 blah. And so they left. They went and built their own one, right? And so this big REIT has a 75% floor, 75% of a high rise in one of the most expensive cities in the country empty. So that, that raises a great point. What could that landlord have done that you feel would have retained that tenant? I think not waiting to be asked. I think talking to their tenants ahead of time, asking them, would these things be valuable to you? Would you be interested in knowing these things? And then taking the step and not fighting the, not fighting the like Excel sheet battle, like, you know, like having somebody in that, I mean, I think that it's fundamentally a leadership thing is the, is the issue. But um, I think that hypothetically, if they had the leadership, if they had leadership who wanted to, wanted to embrace that, I think it's a matter of having a conversation with their team. I think it's a matter of having conversations with their customers. I think it's a matter of, creating the capability to make those upgrades internally by working with designers and architects and technology specialists and implementers and system integrators and creating kind of a cross-functional group that tries to address needs for all the different people, right? You need to create like a, a Knights of the Round Table, right? It's, you've got facility management, you've got finance, you've got HR, you've got your tenants, you've got your vendors, your system integrators, your service providers, you got everybody and you sit at the table and go, okay, like what are the things that, what's the dream, what can we do with an existing built building in order to deliver the needs for all of us, right? And where is their cross functionality? Is there an asset that I use that you can use? And then he can also use the data and she can take this out of it. Well, that's one, we can achieve that with this one thing. That's delivering exponential value. Because, but the way it works today is one person says, hey, I want this thing. They go, well, that thing's too expensive. But the reality is it's not going to just be used by facilities or just be used by the occupant. It's going to be you. You can find a way to identify technologies and solutions that address multiple different use cases and different, you know, personas within the organization. And so you have to have that group together or that organization together in the first place. That being said, um, you know, I think organizations should start putting pressure on their CTOs to actually be forward thinking tech guys, right? Like, you know, I mean, I go that's to, what they're there for, right? You know, like there's, there's, <clears throat> there's plenty of 75 year old CTOs out there, right? For some reason. Uh, and we live in a world where every five years, like our technology is completely uprooted and, and changed, right? Like yeah. we have someone who hasn't been in the field in, in, in 40 running flagship on these major corporations. Like there's, there's some concern there, right? Like I, I, I'll walk into meetings sometimes and we'll like talk to the CTO or the person who's supposed to make the decision around this stuff. And it's like, he's, they're just so in the past, right? Or they're, or they're not. So I think organizations should start, I don't know, giving younger people a chance to, <laughs> to do this, you know, hire someone in their forties, at least hire someone in their thirties. You know? Right. I mean, they'll, they'll probably have a little bit of a better idea of what technology and is out there. And they're cheaper. I'm <laughs> sure they're cheaper. cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so one thing that, that uh, we talked about last week that I'd love to dive into a little bit deeper because we just didn't have time were, were some case studies. Um, I know that there's going to be some specific information that you can't share uh, yeah. just based on on what kind of projects they are and who the clients are. But could you walk us through just some high level, you know, like, hey, here, you know, this developer had this idea and here's where innovation and technology and prop tech and this and that kind of yeah. impacted and changed the development? 
Certainly. So there, the one that the one the first one that kind of comes to mind, I think it's probably the one you want to talk about, um, was a kind of a smart city development. So there was a developer out west who wanted to create kind of a world class, high end residential community with commercial and 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 governmental spaces. They basically created like a micro city um, in the, in a single development. It was like 33,000 plus acres, 20 year build out cycle time, you know, multiple phases. Um, and the vision there was to create a fully technology integrated community, right? And so, you know, there was a lot of things that we did. So on that project, I wasn't lead on that one, um, but in that project, they, one of the things we did is we sat down as an organization, sat down with the developer and did kind of a co-creation session. We said, like, what do you want, right? What, and and that conversation isn't always as smooth. You know, it's not as like complimentary. I, I think it's one of the things that's important is that we challenge why you want stuff. Um, that's kind of one of the things that I like to do when I'm working with people. Like, again, you don't always need a piece of tech to solve everything. Sometimes you can solve stuff very simply, right? And so when, when a customer says, hey, I want to do this, I want to do this, and we go, well, why? Why do you want to do that, right? What's the what's the root reason in the, behind it, and then more specifically, what's the root cause? So we did something like that. It's a we did like a co-creation session, and away from that, we came with, I want to have my own network. I want to have my own. You know, we want to create our own network. We don't want to be subservient to a third-party vendor because we're not happy with any of them. We want to have buildings. And this that is are, and this is internet, or this is yeah. Fiber, okay. fiber optic internet. We want our clients to have the fastest internet. We don't want to be subservient to somebody else with a privately owned fiber network. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, so do they kind of treat it as a utility for the for the smart city? Yeah, they created really? their own utility. Yeah, they created, they laid it as a private fiber network for the entire micro city. Wow. And then leveraging that fiber network, that major backbone, um, created, implemented smart lighting to manage traffic right and warn people when there's road hazards or when there needs to, streets closed for construction so you drive onto that lot and all of a sudden you'll see all the lights are red ahead of you on the street lights you'll know that that road's closed and you need to go some other way right or it'll show you where there's parking spots available on the street so as you go up one light will change depending on if it's parked or not so you can look down a single road and identify if there's where there's parking spots available even at night uh <clears throat> It all so that was one that's the smart that's the smart you know street lighting. Um, we did um, fully Alexa integrated homes, so we you know your blinds, your lights, your air conditioning, your audio, your AV, everything's voice command, and we integrated with uh, with Amazon on that one. And then um, it'll also allows you to remotely access them, so you can say, hey, you know, I forgot to turn off the lights, Alexa from my phone, turn off home lights, and boop, your lights will turn off at home. Um, <clears throat> We did a we did a a weather integration with our with the all, every every house's water landscaping infrastructure. So all the build all the all the ground. This is out west where there's a desert. Where there's a lot of deserts, and water is a very valuable commodity out there. And so we integrated their watering you know sprinkler system with weather data so we could identify you know and there's also some there's some uh, moisture moisture meters inside that are built baked in so whenever the water went to a certain level it said all right we need a water but before it did that it would go back and say is it going to rain today right if there was a really good chance of rain it would hold it would delay the actual 
watering and wait for the rain to come through and then check again the moisture meter. And if it was wet enough, it wouldn't. If it wasn't quite wet enough, it would kind of top it off. And so it's using natural resources to achieve the goals that it's trying to do in a, in a scarce environment. Um, so those are just a couple examples of things that we had done. Um, but it, 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 it was a fantastic project. It's beautiful too. Yeah, the the irony is never wasted on me whenever I drive past a neighbor's yard and they've got the sprinkler going off while it's raining outside. Yeah. It's like, what? How is this? What is happening here? Um, it's pretty. It's pretty funny to to like look back on you know twenty something years ago. Disney released that movie Smart House, and now yeah. we literally have smart like neighborhoods and cities. I mean, it's well, that's, crazy. I mean, you're get, like that's the one thing that like it drives me insane. Like, you know. Most people have some, a, a Nest, an Echo, uh, you know, an Amazon, Alexa in their home. Like our homes are smarter than our buildings, right? Like it's like we, true. we can do it. We have the technology, right? Like consume and consumers are expecting it. Like that's the other thing is like you when you think about your baseline experience, like you go home, I sit in my house and I go like, hey, TV, top volume up, blah, 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 blah. You know, play play Taylor Swift, right? You know, so me and my kids can dance to it. Yeah, yeah, the kids. <laughs> yeah. <Sure>. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But bad reputation was fantastic. That's right. <laughs> Take that. Uh, and so she uh, – so – why can't why can't I just do that at my office? Like, why is it so difficult, right? And and that's the thing. I think uh, we're trying. That's what we try to address. We try to solve, make that process simple for people who you know who may even maybe are that are that want to do it. People that are on the fence about doing it. You know how do we can help them deliver that? And the, the beautiful thing about it is like, if you're doing a new construction, it's actually cheaper to make a smart city or a smart building than it is to do the traditional way. Because there's immense amounts of weights and inefficiency in the traditional construction model. And so by doing it this way, you're gonna do it faster, you're gonna do it cheaper, and then you're gonna have a building that's enabled to address any of your needs, right? And I think that gets to something that you and I had talked about, like your tenant today is not necessarily your tenant in 10 years. I don't know if the 30 year right. lease is gonna survive this, right? I think that people, because we've lost so many businesses, you're gonna have, we're gonna, when, when when things go back to normal, we're gonna see huge influx of startups again, trying to fill the void of a lot of these businesses that have disappeared. And startups don't necessarily have the wherewithal or the credit rating or the anything to sign a 30 year lease. So I think, you know, we're gonna see some three year, one year, five year leases. And that means as a building owner, you need to be prepared for potentially changing out your clients every couple of years with new TIs. And so, in order to be competitive, how can you have the right infrastructure to address multiple different clients' needs and fundamentally enable them as well, right? So we've talked about the importance of the built environment enabling your tenants to deliver their goals. How to how do you design how do you think about that when you might have a different type of tenant every ten, five years, right? Like so that's where the new construction world where where we come in and we say, we're going to help do that design assist from concept all the way through to delivery to ensure the fidelity of that capability, but also ensure that it's done in a cost effective way and so that you're prepared for the future. Yeah, so I definitely want to get into the cost here in a second, because obviously it's, you know, for investors, it's all about the return on investment. 
you know, if I'm going to spend $100,000 to make a smart building, how's that going to come back to me? But one thing I want to talk about first is, you know, I think this kind of goes in line with, one, the, the entire smart city that you were a part of, but also these new construction commercial buildings. I mean, it's, it's not cheap to go through and make a building smart if you're doing it right. And if you're doing it, if you're taking it all the way, I mean, you can do little things here and there that of course help, but you know, if you're going to go have a fully integrated smart building, it's, you're spending some money. Um, how are you, how do you pre-plan that building for technology of the future, right? Sure. Because if, if technology yeah. is changing over every five years in 10 years, my building's going to be obsolete again. So how, how do I make sure to stay ahead of that? So I think the, 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 the first step to do is to plan core infrastructure. So if you look at your building, there is layers of how often things change, right? Like what we call edge devices, which is, you know, your phone, your sensors, those things change yearly, daily, monthly, right? You know, um, those things are constantly being updated, but they're relatively easy to change if they're in space, right? It's like, you know, you unpull, you pull off, you pull off the sensor, you put on a new sensor, right? It's, they're not, they don't require a huge amount of cost. Now you have your series of like intermediate technologies and like, maybe I'll just see if I have this up here. So if you think about like the lifespan, right? So you have the longest layer, the thing that sticks around the longest is your core infrastructure, right? Like that's water, that's sewers, that's gas, electrical good, you know, street lighting, communication, fiber optics, like that's, that stuff is there the longest, right? And fundamentally, like we're not changing too, too much at that level. But what's important is to plan your infrastructure layer to be flexible. That's the first step. So how do you plan for your infrastructure layer to be flexible? The next is your system layer. This is like intermediate lives. This is like, you know, traffic lights, meters, you know, BMSs, like fire life, all the like kind of stuff that you interact with on a day in and day out basis that leverages that core infrastructure. That stuff tends to have a 30 year life cycle, 20 year life cycle. Um, they're not, you know, we're not innovating too much in, you know, traffic management. Well, we, we are with autonomous vehicles, but from like a controlling standpoint, you know, not, not too, too much is there. The next layer is your analytics layer, right? So we've left the systems. We're now in the cloud. And in the cloud, you know, that's part of your, that's that's what, what your data lake strategy is as an organization. That's, a, that's always moving, I think. Um, but that's what your CTO's job is to do at an organization. So how are you capturing, how are you managing, and how are you actionalizing that data? That's part of that larger conversation we had. And then there's the edge devices. Those things shift out, right? And they're always changing and that's okay. You know, it just is what it is. But the, what, with that being the case, you need to be much more conscious of what you do invest in at the edge level, right? So I had a guy, I had a property developer talk about how a great example is like he replaced all of his outlets to start to include USB in all of his properties. He's like, and then that kind of went away, right? Like, because people didn't want to use like 12 volt for all of their USBs. They wanted to maybe use a higher amperage or something like that. So he kind of, that's an edge device, short life cycle product. Yep. Does that kind of answer your question? So planning, I think the planning starts at the infrastructure and system layer. And if you don't plan for those to intercommunicate, but also be flexible, you're not going to be able to address those next two layers that are always shifting and always moving. Right. Are you seeing changes in the way that buildings are designed physically in order to accommodate technology or future adaptations? 
Uh, well, because I, I, I mean, we had talked, you know, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, one thing like, you know, maybe an office building is going to be good for an office for 10 years. And then, you know, in year 11, it's probably better suited for multifamily. And so like, let's go through and shift those back to multifamily. And then yeah. 10 years after that, maybe you shift it back. I mean, are you starting to see that a little bit more now? So I think, that for that? I think, yeah, yeah. I mean, we are, we definitely are, right. We're seeing more people are designing their buildings to be more flexible for the long term. Right. And, you know, th this necessarily wasn't even COVID. This was this was other stuff. But, uh, you know, a great example, and I talked about it with you, there was a, uh, there, I went into a site walk here in Nashville for a active senior living center, which is basically, you know, there's, I'm not, I'm not in the self, not in the elderly care environment too often, but it, it's basically like, you've got like planned senior communities, then you've got active communities, which doesn't require any help, but they want to be a little more centralized. Um, it's not like a big house. They have an apartment. They want, they're kind of scaling down. Then you start getting into, you know, uh, supported care where there's like maybe food and things like that. And then you get all the way down to like, you know, really, really nursing and memory care, nursing homes and like really intense stuff. And so what these guys were, they were really on that earlier stage. And so they, they had designed this building to be a place like it had pools, gyms, and also stuff. It was like a cool topic, but particularly for, for retirees. And, they would uh they had they had a movie theater and they had like all these different really cool things and when we went and went to the site walk what was really interesting is a couple of those areas like the movie theater and then one other area like a like i had a cocktail bar like a bar lounge area that they built at those both those areas were piped and plumbed and vented in order to be converted into a, a laundry mat, like a much more intense laundry area and a in-house kitchen. So if you like ripped up the floor, the carpet on the ground and the theater, there's like, there's primary drainage, right? There's fire suppression systems above it that are uh, commercial grade. They've got hood vents, all the infrastructure for hood vents to pull air out and cycle it so that they can run a kitchen. And the reasoning for that is they're, their customers are going to get old. They're going to get older and they're going to have to, you know, the, the idea is that they eventually are going to potentially, as their clients age, they can convert to the need that their clients are going to require that. Right. Brilliant. Right. And it, and as, yeah. a, and it adds retail value. Yeah. You, know, you save so much that. money doing that. Right now, you know, you'd have to build a whole nother building and then ship it. And like, there's just so much other stuff you'd have to do. And now it's, they just, they laid the duct work. That's all they did. Yeah. I mean, and it's brilliant. You know, if you're an office developer to think about it, like you come in, you develop an office building, but you pre you prepare that that office building could be converted into multifamily and you go ahead and spend that upfront cost. It costs you a little bit more, but you know, what does that do for your resale value and, and your, and your, your prospective buyers, you know, 10, 15 years from then, like, Hey, look, you don't like office. You know, this office is a little aged, you know, now, you can come in and convert yeah. it into multifamily or turn it into a hotel or, you know, it just opens up the buyer pool. It changes your TI, it changes your tenant infill requirement. Like that's the other thing is like, you know, it speeds that process. So if it's like, oh, well, we're buying this old this and we're going to convert it to that, right? We're going to keep the shell, but we're going to tear everything down. It's like, well, that process is faster now. It's less expensive, but it also addresses the constant shifts in the market, right? You know, housing is like residential housing is going gangbusters right now. Right. Like people are fleeing the big kind of urban cores on the coast and moving back home because they can re work remotely. And so you're seeing kind of central cities 
property values just skyrocket. Like I've got a house in the market that I bought that's, you know, God, it's like, it's got like 300 grand worth more value from six years ago. Right. And it's in a, kind of a you know, kind of a city that had stagnated. So, um, you know, here in Nashville, all my, you know, everyone, all the residential markets still moving really fast. And it's, you know, it's in response to COVID, it's in response to these changes. And so, as a property owner, if you've got, you know, there's guys that have big, they built giant buildings downtown on spec for office. And most offices are kind of empty right now. So if I was them, I'm going, oh man, what am I going to do? How do I, you know, how do I capitalize on the market trends now? You know, if they had actually designed with the capability to convert to high-end homes or condos or whatever the case may be, they could have spent the last six months doing that and then turning around and renting those properties. Right. They could be renting. Right. They could have customers in them right now if they had done that. So it gives you it, not only does it give you resale value. Right. But it gives you the ability to address whatever the whatever market generates the most revenue at that time. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of hedging your bet because these towers can sometimes take years to, to build. And so, you know, you have no idea how the, how the market's going to shift. You know, you might have you might be building the next giant multifamily tower and then you have what happens in Nashville in 2017 you know, a dozen apartment complexes, hundreds and hundreds of units get delivered. And all of a sudden yeah. the market's incredibly soft. I mean, it yeah. took, took yeah. a little bit to, to catch up. Yeah. And so it gives you the ability to be flexible, right? Like that's, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what resiliency really is, right? Like resiliency in business is about being able to address, being prepared to address problems that are external. Right. Being able to address, you know, there's also internal components, but like, you know, a flood. Right. You know, uh, we we live in like I said, we're here in Nashville. We had a suicide bomber on Christmas Day this year. Right. Like, how do you, you know, AT&T, I have AT&T Internet. It, it went out for a couple of days, but they had a, res, you know, they, while they addressed the problem there, they reshifted networks to other areas. My Internet was slower, but I got it back in a couple of days. That's incredible. Right. Like. That's a good resi- that's a resiliency plan. And that's important, you know, and maybe it's not a suicide bomber, maybe it's a tornado. Maybe it's, you know, a pandemic that shifts makes everyone stay home for days and so now homes are more valuable. There's just so many different things that can negatively impact your business. It feels like there's more and more now, right? You know, due to global warming and these kind of changes. So it's more important. I don't think I don't think this is our last pandemic <laughs> in our lifetime, uh, to be honest. I don't think um, and I don't think we're going to see less kind of chaos. We're seeing fires in California that are impacting indoor air quality, threatening homes. There's all sorts of stuff that, you know, is just kind of accelerating due to this. And so it, it's important that you plan to be flexible because you're going to have to be, you know. Yeah. I mean, the more that you can, you know, again, you're hedging your bet, right? And so just taking the chance, yeah, look, maybe it costs you a little bit more to just run, you know, another vent, uh, where you can run pipes and stuff later. But yeah. I mean, how much is that going to save you in the long run? Yeah. And a lot of that can be fixed by t- tenant infill too. Like if, what if you just did this infrastructure layer? Like don't even yeah. worry about the system components. That's just it. do the infrastructure. Make sure, maybe run an extra set of piping to, you know, every couple hundred feet in your, on your third floor that allow you can, you can turn to plumbing, you can turn it to shower water, you know, and or put an access grate on them, cover it with carpet. No one will ever know it's there. And then, in five, six years, when all of a sudden everybody wants to live in a high-end condo downtown or whatever, boom, tenant info, right? So yeah, just just enabling yourself to be able to deliver something else. Yeah, I mean, all it takes is adding a chase. 
you add, add a chase here and there. I mean, that's that 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 literally yeah. is a, an improvement upon you know what most people do right now. I mean, just yeah. think about it. That's that's yeah. the most expensive is having to go through and cut up these floors and yeah. add stuff back in and and go back because well, if you think about it on the front end. You're going to engineer the building around it, whereas if you're coming at it on the back end, you've got to engineer around the building, and that's yeah. a nightmare to deal oh, with. Oh, I mean, and and to engineer on the building, you've got to. So you're let's say you got the new plan, fantastic, right? You want to ensure that you're delivering the same service to your other customers that are in the building, right? Unless you're doing a complete, you're kicking everybody out. But then there's like structural components that you're potentially unlevering, right? Like you need to, you're you're tearing up concrete, you're going into walls, you know. There's potentially, you know, the 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 conduit isn't wide enough for the new system. I mean, there's just all sorts of stuff. Like a lot of times, what we tell architects and we have architects that do this is when they're designing a building, like, and you're building that kind of core infrastructure where you're going to run your cabling and all your wire and all that stuff, like put two in there. <laughs> just, just add one. Add one, right? Add one. It doesn't cost a lot. doesn't take up much space. But then whenever some new invention comes along, you've got a fully, con- you've got a fully committed empty conduit that you can just throw in there. Like it, that's not a huge tech solution. That's not a new app. It's just putting in some duplication so that if it, as new things come along, you can still you can address it, right? Like right now, I can't do that because I've got conduits stuffed to the gills with every single piece of technology in that building, and I can't go in there and rip all that out and put in a new one. I'm going to shut the power off. I'm going to shut off, you know, air. I'm going to shut off, you know, internet connection for your company. Like it's just not over. feasible. So it's just, that's the thing is it's just not feasible because it wasn't designed to be flexible. Yep. So let's dive into the fun part now. I mean, how do we make it? How do we make it financially feasible? How, yeah. how, you know, cause I, I would argue that every developer would of course offer all of these things on yeah. every single building that they do, because one tenants find them attractive. Tenants are willing to pay more for them typically. And maybe that's how we can tr- you know, try and justify it. But you know, how, how do developers kind of get an ROI on their expenses yeah. involved in making smart buildings? Absolutely. So, you know, the, it's, it's actually really easy. You, it, is cheaper to design a smart building than it is to design a kind of a traditional building. And, and, and I'll, I'll kind of explain how that works. So right now, the traditional model, you have a developer working with an architect, they have a beautiful vision and design. It then goes, they bring in the GC. The GC, you know, is like, this is great. This is really cool. We're excited to be part of this project. And then it goes into pre-construction planning. And what they end up doing is they take the product vision and then the plans, the architectural plans, and then they start to break out into different components, right? Mechanical, electrical, plumbing, you know, those may even go, electrical might be broken into low voltage, high voltage, it may even go secure, you know, it may even break down further. And what happens is each time you're doing landscaping, they're, they're creating silos of communication and silos of deliverables. And so those organizations then say, all right, we have our electrical plan. We're gonna take our electrical plan and then we're going to sub out to a different electrical contractor and they're going to quote materials. We've built a spec and we're going to go out and we're going to get bids for the material. And so what ends that happens is you have an electrical contractor that goes to an electrical distributor, right? And this is happening in the mechanical. This is happening in plumbing. This is the same channel. And they're all kind of spreading out further and further of each other. And they go to a, a distributor and that distributor goes, great. 
let's look at these plans, these products. Yep, I carry all these items. You know, hey, I don't carry this item. That goes to another house across the street, but you and me have a special pricing agreement because you buy all your conduit from me. And if you want to be able to sell this whole package, you need to buy this thing instead of this. So then he goes back and makes a request to switch some item out so that he can get that preferred pricing package from that distributor. The distributor is simultaneously working with a specific a manufacturer's rep and a manufacturer who are saying, well, you know what? If you could use this item, which is 10 years old, it's going to be, I'll cut the price in half, right? And get rid of it. And so they're all trying to shave little pieces off of the cost in order to generate more margin. And so you end up with this horribly stacked, margin stacked product, right? The manufacturer sells margin to the rep, rep to the distributor, distributor to the contractor, contractor to the GC, GC to the customer, right? And so that's, those are layers of, in, those are layers of, of commission that everyone's got to put on top of it. But you're also finding ways to create more margin. And there's a little dirty secret about sales reps. They make a thing called overage. And so if they, anytime over the sales price, they get more money. And so they're going to do what they call spec lock to get that. And <clears throat> so by doing that, there's a ton of money baked in there. But more importantly, that's happening across your entire technology stack. So that's happening in plumbing, that's happening in mechanical components. And so, and then simultaneously from a labor standpoint, they're all running conduit, they're all running wire, they're all pulling things, right? And functionally, that doesn't need to happen. You know, you'll have six, seven, eight layers of conduit and wire run across all those things, which could really just be one or two, right? And so if you design take that concept with the developer and we sit down and we design the technology requirements to fit that intention and then work through the channel to ensure that fidelity of vision by control as a partner with the developer we're able to say you know what you can't switch that spec out it has to be this and i don't care if it's going to save you two dollars a light bulb or a nickel on this because that's not what's important the long-term value is the the asset right the channel is transactional and so the channel uh, is focused on getting the lowest price right now to sell for the highest margin, right, that they can make or justify. And for the contractor, they're trying to reduce the cost as much as possible. So you have this constant battle where these guys are trying to sell for more money and they're driving an older product with a that costs much less that fits the lower cost that the contractor needs, but doesn't actually work for the customer. So let's say we do all that, right? We go through the traditional channel. Now, you have this vision for a connected building that works together or a tenant does and all those systems in there none of them were designed to work together right they don't even some of them don't even speak a proprietary integration protocol some of them do but they speak backnet one speaks modbus one speaks lawnworks one speaks a proprietary language from the manufacturer that no they won't integrate with anyone else one uses apis so now you have to hire a system integrator to come in and smash and figure out ways to kind of make all this work together. Doesn't work the way it's intended, but eventually it does. But you got to pay that guy a lot of money. And so you can mitigate all of that <laughs> by just saying, we want to design a smart building up front. Let's bring in a technology design partner to come in and help with us. And they're going to sit down and walk through and ensure this deliver gets delivered in the way we want it to be delivered. And we've done that for our clients. We did a project here in Nashville called the Project when I was at Siemens. And we cut first run costs. We said they didn't necessarily believe us. We said, all right, you bid it out the normal way. We'll build it out our way. And we'll do the whole package. We'll do the whole package. We'll bid all of it, right? And instead of just bidding on mechanical, right? We want to bid on everything. We did it that way. We were 
5% lower just off bat for the whole package. I mean, that's you're cutting 5% off of an entire first run cost for a building. I mean, when you're talking, especially on a project that size, it's hundreds of millions. I mean, 5% is a huge difference. Yeah. It's monstrous, right? It's monstrous. So, you know, and we we, we cut 60 days off of construction time because we didn't have to hire a mechanical, to, a guy to come live. We didn't have to hire a guy to come run wire for mechanical, a guy to run wire and conduit for, elect, you know, for electrical, a guy to run it for plumbing. You know, we didn't do it. We had one single utility fiber. You know that that addressed all those needs. So we took all the different systems that were designed, we put them on one network, and we cut material costs, construction time, right? And that's where you save a ton of money. And that now there's they had 60 days, they got 60 days of construction time cut down. The beauty of that is they ended up hitting a, a, a when they started digging, they hit like a huge like limestone deposit, right? Which took 60 days extra. So now everyone would have been behind schedule, but because we were able to truncate it on our side, they ended up ending finished on schedule and under budget. So is, is that some sort of pro, like proprietary Siemens system or, or is that something that any contractor can do? They just choose not to do like having people come in and, and run, run a single conduit line. No, I mean, so I think it, you know, any, anybody can do it, but the thing is it's the know-how, right? Like you have to have the expertise. You have to understand the different systems that are going in. And that goes back to that siloization. A contractor isn't necessarily uh, you know, your regular contractor is not necessarily going to have time to think about. <clears throat> Sorry, my niece is trying to FaceTime. <laughs> it's all good. My, uh, <clears throat> they're not necessarily going to think outside the focus of what they're worrying about, right? You know, if I'm a if I'm an electrical contractor, my job is to get on the job and off the job, and I don't drive scope. I don't drive decisions. I don't drive what the deliverable looks like. That's somebody else above me. And I, my job is to do the work, right? Um, but in, at the same time, maybe some of those systems that I'm looking at are going to be addressing plumbing, right? Or mechanical, which isn't really what my focus is. I'm an electrical guy, right? So that's the problem is the stylization. That's why it's valuable to have somebody. That's why the value is being able to navigate all those different trades, and kind of ensure that what gets the vision that and the goals of that development get done and implemented right the first time. But yeah, any you know, guy, people can do it. They just need to take the time to learn or think about it and work on it and design it. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's anything that's really all too out there or so overly complicated that it's rocket science. It just it's like one of those things. Like yeah. I mean, maybe we should have our employees come in one hour later. Let's see how that works for us. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's also understanding like the pitfalls of doing it wrong or understanding the importance of like, like understanding the complicated nature of the channel and how to navigate that. Like that takes a long time, right? There's a lot of conflicting interests that happen in the channel of construction from the contractor to the GC, to the distributor, to the manufacturers. Like everybody has their own kind of thing that they're trying to achieve. And so it's, you know, it's valuable to have somebody who understands how to navigate that in a way that ensures everyone kind of gets what they need um, while simultaneously saving costs and improving timetables, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, that improving timetables alone is worth it. I mean, cause that, that yeah. insurance and, you know, carry your carry costs will add up, man. Um, they, they really do. <laughs> So, David, prediction for 2021, what do you think is going to be one of the bigger, 
Uh, what, what do you think is going to have a bigger impact on technology and innovation this year in, in the built environment? I mean, obviously, we saw that Zoom and these, these remote work capabilities were massive for 2020. What do you mm-hmm. think is going to happen in 2021? I think people are going to be dying to go back. Right. I think we're all going to we're going to want to go back. I think what's going to end up happening is people are going to come back uh, and building tenants are going to say, you know what? We want something else. We want a better space. Right. We want to we want it to be cheaper. We want it to be more enabled. We want it to be more green. We want it to be more sustainable. We want it to be all of that. Right. I think that tenants are going to drive that in a lot of ways because um, they, you know, they they're trying to appease their their workers. And it's important because they have to figure out a way to get their workers to come back because at the end of the day, workers who, you know, workers are fundamentally more productive in, in, in when they work and they're in this space together and they're able to work on stuff. Um, you know, so I think that there's going to be a lot of new tenant infills that are going to uh, drive. They're going to have to be a lot more capable than they probably planned them on them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so um, I think that we're going to see. I think we're still. I think we're going to see a lot more um, flex spaces go up. I think we're going to start seeing more edge development, like less urban core. We're going to start seeing kind of like, you know, mixed use flex spaces, kind of on the on the periphery of 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 cities. Um, so kind of out, just outside the main areas. I think that's going to be valuable because people are going to start. People who have the wherewithal to buy a home are going to start doing that. Uh, they're going to try to work from home in a lot of cases, and uh, but they're still going to want to be able to go, you know, get something to eat, go have a drink somewhere. But they're going to want to have it in a, an environment that's still COVID safe. Um, so I think outdoor edge flex spaces. Uh, it's not quite one answer, but I, you know that's just like the the image that keeps popping into my head is like yeah. a place to go sit down outside, socially distance, have a drink, listen to music, maybe let my kids play. Um, you know, that's close to my house that I don't have to like fight traffic and go downtown and pay for parking for. Yeah. I mean, it's basically neighborhood retail at the core, right? I mean, that's neighborhood retail. You've got professional services, offices, you've got restaurants, you've got bars, um, you know, all of the services that provide your daily needs. And that's been a fascinating thing to watch throughout COVID because everybody's saying, oh, stay away from retail. Retail's dead. Retail's real. You know, Amazon's coming in with the hammer. And it's just not even remotely true, even with the shutdowns. I mean, there's some restaurants that are breaking records in, in sales, yeah. and it, but it's all because they're still serving their local neighborhoods. So I think you're absolutely right with that one. And, you know, I think they're still, they're still doing – I mean, your local restaurants are delivering like never before. You know, I mean, like a lot of places didn't deliver before COVID. Now every yeah. single restaurant open does, right? And that's why they're breaking records. Like they're maybe they're not addressing as many people inside, but they're just addressing more. Like they're not limited by the constraints of tabletops anymore, right? They they're limited by the constraints of how many things they can turn out based off of orders. And so that's an example of like technology, COVID driving innovation, and then leveraging technology to end up delivering their service to their core customers, right? So like, how does that building, when you look at that building, like maybe what that building needs to be is less focused on, you know, seating and focus more on uh, a pl- more parking for what's, you know, Postmates drivers or, um, 
more staging area for takeout orders or more area focused on, you know, maybe more cooking or preparation times, right? So, you you know, maybe convert more of it into actual more kitchen and hire more cooks. So there's like, you know, there's a lot of things that you can, that need to be addressed to that, that you know, that they can do to address the new normal that that's ahead of them. But yeah, but neighborhood retail is the way to go. Like I, I personally, I think, I, I think, um, I think there's a lot of people who are, people are, you know, I order from Amazon. I don't like to, you know, but I do. It's in, it's inescapable. Right. Um, we're on, we're talking, we're talking on the internet on the, on a, a site that's probably hosted at Amazon headquarters. Um, so, you know, they're, the citizen Amazon is, is kind of a, is becoming a truism, but that, I spent enough time at home already. Right? Like I don't necessarily want to. I want to go out and I want to buy. I don't want to cook as much, right? Like I'm cooking. You know, once COVID, when COVID first hit, I'm cooking three meals a day in my home, right? I used to eat lunch out for work. I do that less and less. And I think that in 2021, as more people vaccinate, you're going to see people wanting to go out a lot more. But they're also not going to want to go put themselves completely at risk. Yeah. You know, so I think that they're going to. You're going to see people who want to walk to a normal re- local restaurant, go check out a new outdoor menu kind of safe area. Like outdoor, and we're fortunate because we live in a place where even when the weather's bad, it's still manageable, right? You know, right. Uh, it's not like living like, you know, Chicago where you're snowed in all the time. So outdoor dining and outdoor experiences are really viable here. Yeah. Yeah. Nashville is very lucky in that respect, which is, uh, which is always nice, you know. It can be a little hot in the summers, and it can definitely get pretty damn cold in the winters. But it's not—it's nowhere. It's not an extreme by any means. Well, David, hey, if uh, example of that, like they say, you never—or it's not too cold. You're just not dressed enough, right? That's and right. I take that to heart. You're just oh, not dressed oh, yeah. appropriately. Get a bigger jacket. Yeah. That's, uh, I've got a buddy who says pretty much the same thing. It's like, there's never, there's no such thing as bad weather. You're just not dressed right. I, I <laughs> I'm like, agree. That's actually a great way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah. It's hot because I cannot, uh, I cannot handle the heat. It's just. I'm not built for that either. Don't no, worry. No, I'm not. I know. I lived in New Orleans for 15 years and I always carried this around. Yeah. <laughs> I turned into like an old, like an old stereotype. I do declare, I believe I've got. Yeah, I was gonna say, you're like old Beauregard over there. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. Well, David, if anybody has any questions about you know Brainbox AI and how they can implement that in their building system, if they have questions about project management on some new developments or, uh, or you know anything else, how how can people get a hold of you? Yeah, uh, so uh, my email, I can my my email for Brainbox is uh, d dot stoller at brainboxai.com uh, or my personal email for the project management component we we're using personal right now but uh stay tuned because it looks like we might be starting something up uh in the works in the next coming weeks and months um, but you can reach out to me at david.f as in foxtrot stoller s-t-o-l-l-e-r at gmail.com uh, or you can reach out to me on linkedin um i'm happy to have you take a message to set up a call to talk through what you're what you're thinking about yeah, that's probably the best. And, and on LinkedIn, you're just David Stoller, right? Yep, just David Stoller. So uh, look for the look for the handsome guy in a black and white photo. Of my wife. <laughs> he is humble. He is also yeah. very humble. <laughs> well, David, I appreciate you joining me, man. I owe you some beers. Can't wait to catch up at East Nashville Beer Works. And uh, yeah. thanks for, thanks for coming on the show. This week or next week. That's it, man. All right. Take care, you guys.
Thanks a lot. Appreciate the opportunity, guys.